You're listening to another episode of Batman v. Batuman with lots of comic book news and reviews coming at you. Let's start with the news. Wonder Woman just turned 75, and in honor of her contribution to the cause of feminism and female empowerment, she was just named the UN Honorary Ambassador for the Empowerment of Women and Girls. Uh, since Wonder Woman's obviously a fictional character, this honorary ambassadorship was accepted on her behalf by Linda Carter and Gal Gadot, who have and will play her in live-action form, as well as the upcoming Wonder Woman Films director, Patty Jenkins. Going with them was the president of DC Entertainment, Diane Nelson. So a pretty formidable bunch of ladies. As far as what Wonder Woman will be doing on behalf of the UN, it looks like Gal Gadot is going to appear in a couple of PSAs, and DC is going to release a special comic book aimed at empowering women and girls, which will be printed in the six official languages of the United Nations. Arabic, Chinese, English, French, Russian, and Spanish. In more entertainment-themed news, Deadpool 2 just lost its director, Tim Miller, who directed the first Deadpool. Uh, it appears that he had creative differences with Ryan Reynolds, um, in part because of the casting of Cable. It was apparently a contentious decision. It doesn't seem like anyone else who brought Deadpool to the screen uh, and was involved with the sequels out, so they just need a new director at this point. All right, I've been able to read a bunch of comic books in the last week, so I'll start by reviewing a new series, Trinity, uh, which is a long-running on-and-off series by DC which stars Wonder Woman, Superman, and Batman. Although this seems like a slam-dunk title just based on the strength of those three characters, it's been pretty inconsistent which is why DC decided to trust Francis Manupal with the writing and drawing of the book. Although there isn't a ton of action and superhero fights in the first two issues, it's actually a very well-told, somber story of father and son between Superman and his son John, and a nice portrait of the relationship between Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. All of the characters are very much themselves uh, between Batman's paranoia, Wonder Woman's empathy, and Superman's self-doubt but determination to be Superman. The book's off to a good start. The art is also really beautiful, uh, especially in the second issue. The three of them end up wandering in the woods for a while, and Francis Manipal can draw the hell out of some woods. The first issue was uh, pretty mellow, just a family dinner at Superman's house that Batman and Wonder Woman crash. The second issue ended on kind of an interesting cliffhanger. Which makes me think that all the superhero fighting that the first two issues were missing is probably going to explode in issue three. If you want something that's easy to jump into with three characters like this who are very identifiable, go snag a copy of Trinity 1 and 2. I picked up another issue of Justice League, which continues the State of Fear storyline that started in the last issue. Um, this issue also ended the State of Fear storyline. It's a pretty short little arc here. Basically, the Justice League was fighting a manifestation of uh, fear or something. It's not really clear. It, it seemed very metaphorical and weird, considering that the first five issues were about enormous hybrid man-machine aliens that were trying to take over the world and blowing up cities. I gotta say, I'm not, I'm not really thrilled with the direction of this series, and uh, I, I took Justice League off of my pull list at the comic book store. There's a lot of really awesome stuff that's out right now, DC or otherwise, and Justice League is unfortunately not among them. Green Arrow number 9 continues the Island of Scars storyline, where Oliver is abandoned on a mysterious island, much like the one from his origin story, but with robotic bears, which is a big red flag. Although the first major arc of the book was over, this issue actually kind of related to that storyline, where Oliver takes on a weird 
uh, criminal, banking, corporate, secret society. The people on this island were in business with that society, and it actually tied back really nicely, considering that the two issues before the Island of Scars storyline dealt more with the Yakuza than a continuation of the first arc. And although the Yakuza issues weren't bad, or even mediocre, they were a little slower than the first arc, so I thought maybe there would be a lull before the next big event. Turns out I was wrong. Green Arrow is probably the best DC Rebirth series. Feels weird to say it, because I'm reading Batman, which is great, and some of the others show a lot of promise, but for now, my vote's with Green Arrow. It's really riveting, well-written stuff. Wonder Woman number eight was an origin story for her nemesis, Cheetah, who'd popped up in a few of the issues so far. Barbara Ann Minerva was a former archaeologist turned Cheetah hybrid person. And uh, I gotta say, I wasn't too familiar with her outside of her being a Cheetah who hates Wonder Woman. But this issue definitely made me sympathize with her a little more. And it was actually a pretty cool, like, Indiana Jones-esque story that established a motivation for her to hate Wonder Woman before she even meets Wonder Woman. Greg Rucka is a pretty good writer, and he's proven it with every issue of Wonder Woman so far. When I was at the comic book store, I also did something I never thought I would do, even with the recurring segment on the show of doing an uninformed Marvel review. I picked up an issue of a Marvel book. Just one issue. Uh, I felt kind of dirty doing it, but it was the last copy there, and it's of a series that was apparently in high demand, so at least I got to ruin some Marvel fan's day when he went to the store and found out it was sold out. The book was Infamous Iron Man by Brian Michael Bendis, and it's about a reformed Doctor Doom who's no longer scarred and disfigured uh, and doesn't really have a motivation to be a bad guy, deciding to find Tony Stark's lab, since apparently Tony Stark is uh, injured or dead or something, and steal some of his Iron Man armor so that he can himself become Iron Man, hence Infamous Iron Man. The first few pages were amusing and did a good job of establishing who Doctor Doom is, especially with this new take on the character. But the rest of the book was kind of up and down as far as like the pace and the writing. Brian Michael Bendis apparently writes a ton of Marvel stuff. He's got several ongoing series that he juggles, and uh, maybe he was just stretched too thin for this book, but it was fine. I'm not going to keep buying these, obviously, but it was worth picking this up just to ruin someone's day and also to break my streak of never buying a Marvel book. And on that note, this seems like as good a moment as any to sloppily transition into my favorite segment, which I do every episode, an uninformed Marvel review, where I read a Marvel book or several issues of a run and do an uninformed summary, then review of it. This week, uh, in honor of the Logan trailer, which was released the other day and blew me out of my chair, I decided to read something with Wolverine. By the way, if you haven't seen the Logan trailer, check it out. Hugh Jackman tweeted the trailer, and I retweeted that, so if you go to Twitter and check out at Batman v. Batman, you can watch it there if you haven't already. So check that out. It looks pretty good. Uh, definitely old man Logan-y, but with uh, what appears to be an original story. So this week I decided to review Weapon X First Class. Just three issues long, and came out in 2008 and 2009. This was written by Mark Sumarak, with art by Mark Robinson. So we got double the mark, double the fun. The story starts off with Wolverine walking through a forest, reflecting on his past. Specifically, reflecting on a few chunks of his past that he can't remember. After years of heroism and X-manning it up, Wolverine wants some answers. Hence his trek through the woods. He's looking for a place that might hold some answers, and finds a mansion in the middle of a massive clearing. The mansion is none other than the X-Mansion, home of Professor Charles Xavier and the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. 
you might know it better as the headquarters of the X-Men, because that's what I know it as. Wolverine gets to the mansion and walks past friends and students, musing on the main difference between the rest of the X-Men and himself, as he is the only one who doesn't truly know himself. So he heads to the big man's office, hoping that Professor X might help him figure all of this out. This is an uninformed Marvel review, but even I know that Charles Xavier is the world's most powerful telepath, which is awesomely established when Professor X interrupts Wolverine's narration because he can read minds, even in narration box form, as opposed to a thought bubble. But even the world's most powerful telepath admits that Logan's mind is impossible to fully unlock. They've apparently tried before without success, but Wolverine insists that they try one more time. Professor X is happy to oblige his old friend and incepts himself into Wolverine's mind, where the two of them, or manifestations of them, pop into Wolverine's subconscious. They appear to be in a small, windowless room, which kinda makes sense for Wolverine's subconscious. Logan did not expect to be in his own head, but Professor X explains that he brought Logan's consciousness with him into Logan's subconscious because together they might be able to find the missing pieces of the past that the professor couldn't find on his own all the other times that they've tried this. This is pretty far out stuff, even for an X-Men story, but I'm on board. Even with Logan along for the ride though, they're stuck in that small room because Wolverine's mind is jammed up with tons of mental barriers that prevent even Professor X's psychic probing. Wolverine speculates that a group called Department H implanted these barriers. Apparently he used to work for Department H, I couldn't remember if they're the ones who fitted him with an adamantium skeleton in that top-secret experiment, so I asked my roommate Andrew, but even he didn't know, so screw it, let's ignore Department H. Hopefully it doesn't come up again. Besides, the professor senses that some of the mental barriers were actually set by Logan himself, which mean that together they might be able to get out of the weird subconscious jail cell that they're stuck in. Professor X starts pacing around the tiny room, and Logan freaks out that he can walk, so the professor calmly reminds him that they're in his brain, not the real world. Uh, this scene might be my favorite page of any Marvel book I've ever read, by the way. Anywho, working together, Professor X and Wolverine bust out of the mental jail cell and into a cavern full of jumbled memories. Various events throughout Logan's long life play out on large, floating shards of memory glass. Ugh, this is hard to describe. Sorry if it sounds as weird as I think it does but there's really no better way to describe it than large floating shards of memory glass. Anyway, Logan and the professor meander around, checking out these random flashes of memory for any clues. Some of the memories appear to be hundreds of years old, and Wolverine gets weirded out because I guess in this continuity he only thinks he's 40 years old or something. The professor senses that some of the things they're seeing might be false memories, implanted by the Canadian government, another former employer of Wolverine's, which you might remember from one of my earlier episodes. They're interrupted by Wolverine's nemesis Sabretooth, who manifests in the cavern and attacks Logan. Professor X tries to stop the fight, warning Wolverine that hurting a mental conjuration could have some weird side effects. Indeed, this Sabretooth is a figment of Logan's imagination, and when Wolverine tries to kill him, Sabretooth sheds some light on the past. Sabretooth, or rather Wolverine's subconscious version of Sabretooth, reminds Logan of their former friendship and partnership. He also helps Logan remember getting kidnapped by two mysterious goons, but won't explain who they were. To figure that out, Logan and the professor have to get into the next part of his subconscious, which appears as a fortress with barbed wire and guard towers. There are no guards, however, and the door is unlocked, opening to reveal none other than the experiment that gave Wolverine his adamantium skeleton. 
Wolverine looks on with Professor X as the until now repressed memory of being operated on against his will plays out before him. This is so jarring that Logan snaps out of the Professor's inception mind trip and wakes up in the real world, freaked out with his claws out. The Professor suggests that they take a break to avoid overloading Logan's mind with a flood of painful memories. But after a lifetime of trying to reclaim lost memories, Wolverine is way too impatient and they resume the mental journey into his subconscious. Logan and the Professor zap back to the memory of Wolverine getting rigged with adamantium. Although the memory is less upsetting to a mentally prepared Logan, the subconscious version of him getting experimented on breaks out of the lab and attacks the manifestations of Professor X and Logan that are watching him. For some reason, the Professor is more freaked out about this than Logan, who immediately starts fighting memory Logan. The memory then reverts to normal, and a shaken Professor is appalled at Logan's new plan to find and hurt the various doctors and scientists that operated on him. Logan's rage, as well as the intensity of more memories of the adamantium experiment, make it harder for the Professor to maintain this inception mind journey, and despite their progress, Logan reluctantly agrees to take a break for the sake of his friend and mentor. In the downtime, Wolverine trains in the X-Men Danger Room, which, uh, now that I'm seeing it for like the third time, is it, are they fighting holograms? Uh, is Professor X like mentally conjuring up stuff for them to fight? It seems like people can actually get hurt in the Danger Room, um, so are these like real robot things that are attacking them? I've always wondered about this, so if any of you know what the Danger Room is or how it works exactly, please let me know. Anyway, while Wolverine's training in the Danger Room, Professor X builds a portable Cerebro helmet that he can wear in his office for their next attempt at Inception. This device will protect Xavier's mind from any nasty, berserk memory outbursts, but it doesn't work perfectly yet. While the Professor can still open Logan's mind and sort of guide him in the right direction, the portable Cerebro also prevents the Professor from manifesting himself in Logan's subconscious anymore. Wolverine is kind of unsettled at the thought of confronting his repressed memories alone, but he's come too far to give up now. So they dive back into his subconscious, and now alone, Logan is back in the memory of the Weapon X experiment that gave him an adamantium skeleton. The memory version of Wolverine breaks out again and attacks Logan's manifestation, again. Logan senses that this memory is more than a flashback, but rather a figment of his more primal rage side. He realizes that fighting this figment won't solve anything and gets out of the way, letting the memory resume as Figment Wolverine tears through the Weapon X lab, killing guards and scientists. But something goes wrong, and in real life, Logan is attacking the Professor as muscle memory kicks in while he's witnessing this repressed memory. Luckily, some of the other X-Men hear the commotion and stop him before he can hurt the Professor. Xavier tries to calm everyone down, but Logan runs away, appalled that he came so close to hurting his old friend. That night, Logan asks the Professor to wipe his repressed memories. Professor X refuses, trying to convince Logan that no matter what primal urges may lurk in the mind of Wolverine, they also make up whatever makes Logan a good man. They argue about this until they reach a compromise. The Professor can repair the mental barriers that he and Logan broke through earlier and hide the repressed memories until Logan is readier to deal with them. After the process is complete, Logan walks away from Xavier's school for gifted youngsters determined to focus on who he is now until the past comes knocking again. He may not know who he used to be, but by his figuring, now he's a mutant, a hero, an X-Man, and a good man. And that should be enough for now. Uh, that is the main story of Weapon X First Class, but each of the three issues also has a few pages at the end devoted to a bonus side story, uh, which I will now review. 
All of these bonus stories are also written by Mark Sumerak, but the artist for them is not Mark Robinson, it's Tim Seeley, who is actually currently writing Nightwing for DC. Anyway, the first story is about Sabretooth, basically involves Sabretooth meeting with a mysterious guy who wants to recruit him to join a secret program called Weapon X, which is the same codename for the adamantium experiment performed on Wolverine. Sabretooth is enraged at the offer and attacks the mysterious guy, who turns out to be none other than Professor X. The professor psychically neutralizes Sabretooth, realizing that the villain is unlikely to follow the same path as Wolverine. He wipes Sabretooth's memory of the encounter and leaves a mental suggestion to seek out Xavier's school if he ever decides to fight for the cause of mutant kind. Sabretooth eventually comes to and wanders out into the night, feeling uneasy and sensing some sort of impending conflict. The second issue's bonus story features none other than Deadpool making his debut on this podcast. Deadpool is on the phone with Jordan White, the assistant editor of this book. He's arguing about his part in the story and how he has to tone down his usual antics since this book is rated for all ages rather than mature readers. After the phone call, Deadpool gives a quick origin story for Wolverine, including an in-depth look at the secret Weapon X adamantium experiment which Deadpool knows a lot about since he is another mutant subject of Project X. Deadpool then launches into his own origin story, describing how the experiment didn't work out as well for him, uh, leaving him horribly scarred and mentally unstable. It's funnier than I'm describing it, I promise. The third issue's bonus story features the probably-never-gonna-get-made X-Men movie's title character, Gambit. The Cajun thief is spying on a secret base in Canada, hiding in the trees while a blizzard rages around him. Armed with his razor-sharp playing cards and infiltration skills, the mutant makes his way deep into the secret base. He finds a door marked with a biohazard symbol and blows the lock. He's there to find an old diary for whoever hired him, and instead finds the Weapon X lab that Wolverine came out of with an adamantium skeleton. Not sure why a diary would be in a biohazard room, but anyway, Gambit finds three vats containing other Weapon X lab rats, plus a few armed guards. One of the experiments breaks out and attacks the guards. Gambit sneaks away and finds the diary of Nathaniel Essex. As he makes his escape, Gambit sees that the escaping experiment is none other than Wolverine, so I guess this story is a few years in the past. Mortified at what he saw in the lab, Gambit flips through the diaries and sees notes about operating on mutants. He decides to destroy the book and tell Nathaniel Essex that the diary wasn't there. Essex is a creepy, pale weirdo who tells Gambit not to worry and that he has a lot of potential. Unclear if it's a threat or a promise, Essex implies that he is very interested in Gambit's future and departs. Alright, so this story was pretty fun. Uh, kinda trippy, a little sad, and occasionally quite funny. I didn't have a good reason to review it aside from wanting to read a Wolverine story since the Logan trailer inspired me. It was either this or a story by Brian K. Vaughn, and I reviewed one of his books a couple of weeks ago, so Weapon X First Class made the cut. And what a pleasant surprise it was. Not to say that this is my favorite Marvel book or a flawless story. While the concept of Charles Xavier and Logan delving into repressed memories was a terrific idea, it was almost a misdirection. I didn't learn anything new about Wolverine, and they barely discovered any memories after getting to the Weapon X lab memory, which was literally the first full memory that they unlocked. I like stories that are semi-origin and semi-homage to the character's history, uh, especially if that same story is semi-out there, like Doctor Strange, The Oath from a couple of weeks ago by Brian K. Vaughn, the author I just mentioned skipping because I recently reviewed one of his books, which was The Oath. Anyway, but this book had a way cooler concept than The Oath, 
before dropping that very same concept in favor of a focus on the present, not the past ending. Kinda felt like a cop-out after such an engaging build-up. But other than that note, I have to applaud Mark Sumerak's writing. His dialogue felt spot-on for every character, including the three bonus stories. The dynamic between Professor X and Wolverine was fantastic, and probably the best interpretation of that relationship in anything I've read or seen with those characters. Sumerak's writing also made me laugh out loud a couple of times, which rarely happens when I'm reading. But the coolest thing that he did was probably the early moment of Professor X mind-reading Logan's narration box and interrupting the thought. Narration boxes are usually more nuanced and outside of the story than a thought bubble, and Sumerak could have just had a thought bubble remark by Wolverine that the professor picked up on, uh, which would make more sense and be a pretty standard Charles Xavier move. But to have something as expository and impenetrable as a narration box incorporated into the story like that was not only a great way to underline what a powerful telepath the professor is, but also a clever, innovative way to mess with a storytelling medium that rarely sees surprising new flourishes like that. I realize it's not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things, but this really delighted me. Mark Robinson's art was also quite delightful throughout this book. He has a highly stylized way of drawing the characters, with odd proportions and exaggerated faces. But it all works really well here, especially with the Professor and Wolverine. For example, I did not know that Wolverine is supposed to be 5 foot 3 inches tall, and Mark Robinson draws him at that height, but also makes him incredibly menacing to the point where you almost forget that he's so short, even when he's standing next to other people who are taller than him. Robinson also renders Logan's subconscious in a tormented, creative way from the cavern of random memories and beyond into the traumatic Weapon X experiment that Wolverine repressed. His splash pages are few but breathtaking, with little details that make every inch of paper a work of art. Tim Seeley, who did the bonus story art, is also a talented artist but goes with a safer, standard style that gives those mini-stories a nice, stylistic contrast with the main book. Alright, that does it for this week's Batman v Batuman. If you have any comments, criticisms, or suggestions for next week's Marvel review, let me know on Twitter at Batman v Batuman. If you like the music, you can check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>